Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. Steve Baxter says it like it is. He's not shy about being controversial and he's comfortable with the discomfort of disagreement. But as one of Australia's most visible tech entrepreneurs, active investors and mentor to numerous startups, he's done more than almost anyone to popularise early stage investment. He also provides some of the most useful and easy to remember advice to entrepreneurs like execution is everything and don't treat your business like a cash register. Steve has been a champion of Australian startups and entrepreneurs since he founded River City Labs, Brisbane's well-known co-working hub in 2012. However, many of us are most familiar with Steve as a result of his appearance as a shark on Channel 10's Shark Tank in 2014. These days, Steve is energised by 1013, the investment syndicate platform for sophisticated investors to invest alongside him and the experienced investments team that supports him. It really was a treat to speak with Steve. And like me, I'm sure you won't die wondering what he really thinks. Thanks, Steve. You've just complimented me by saying our setup is fancy. So uh, that's a nice way to start. It's so great for you to share some time with us. Thank you. No, no worries. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me, Catherine. No problems at all. I've heard that you'd like your gravestone to read father, husband, soldier. Why are those three roles in your life the, the most important? Oh, um, well, the first one, I hope, the, I hope the first two are self-evident, to be honest. So I've we'd come quite late to being a dad. So we've got a, a pair of four-year-olds and an eight-year-old. Just turned 50. So, you know, <laughs> came quite late. That being said, you know, it's been a wonderful journey that's taught me a lot, taught me probably until not long ago how selfish I was. And once you start realising it is actually about them and you just get over that and life gets a lot easier all of a sudden. And that's also sort of like limiting your options and you never think until you have fewer options, you can't really excel and enjoy something as much. So it's been quite an interesting and enjoyable process. I love, love them to death. There's something that, you know, when we have kids that, that I can't read headlines, it's that young Young, but a kid who got kidnapped in Western Australia. I, I saw the headline. I couldn't even read the story. It made me sick to the pit of my stomach, which is quite cowardly. But um, I'm so glad it ended well. So I think that you know, once you're a parent, you just don't know. You know to me, that's an easy one. A father. Yeah, I've got a great wife. You know, um, she's awesome. She looks after me so well. Way too well. Way too well. Yeah, I suppose that's a word. And uh, I spent my first uh, nine years in the workforce as a soldier. Joined the army at 15 years old. Very keen to carry a rifle, did that. I'm somewhat patriotic. I'm probably somewhat traditional in my views, of, or, you know, what is nowadays traditional in views, I suppose. I'm a huge patriot in, in, in a very much the definitional sense of the term. I'm very, uh, very proud of our nation and a bit of a nationalist, to be honest. That's not anything extreme or right wing. It's just I, I like Australia. I think we've got an amazingly 
valuable society and there's lots of things that we should keep keep a hold of. I've heard you say that you really grew up in the army, but what were you like before the age of 15? Like what attracted you to the army and, you know, made you think that that would be the home for you? 35 years ago, what made me do that? I knew I wanted to that for a long time. I wanted to be a soldier. So, you know, I had some... Um, Relatives, I suppose, would have done, you know, there's still the, the age of people returning from Vietnam and national service and stuff, so it was quite spoken about, I suppose. To me, I, I sort of enjoyed uh, Boy Scouts, Cubs and Scouts, which I was in, and I thought, well, that sounds like camping. Now, camping in the Army is nothing like camping in Boy Scouts. It's, it's a good deal different, good deal less enjoyable, let me tell you. But the whole time, I really enjoyed it. I think that it's not until you join, at some point after you join, that you realise you're a soldier the day you join up. You're not a digger until you're accepted, and that's sometime after you join up. It's a weird thing. I, didn't, I don't know if I enjoyed it as much at the time as I should have. Um, I, I definitely miss it now to some degree, although I'm a bit old and my knees are gone and God knows what else. So It seemed like one of the relationships before you joined the Army that, that sort of sowed the seed for future success was the relationship with Bevan Slattery that you formed at high school. When you reflect on it, do you think it's a coincidence that two great entrepreneurs came out of a small Rockhampton high school or, or did you sort of make each other great entrepreneurs? I've been asked that one before, I suppose. Yeah, mums are best friends, very similar age, maybe six months apart, but a greater part. I started a little bit younger than almost all kids around. I was quite a young kid uh, in grade one. And mums actually work together now, I think about it, yeah. So we played tennis on a Saturday, they're laying on tennis fixtures as you do in a sort of sort of mid-sized regional town. Rockhampton's produced, you know, some amazing... We used to have a saying in Brisbane, we used to have that called the Rocky Mafia, which is, you know, ridiculous. We also call it Rock Vegas and Bris Vegas, which is ridiculous. If you've ever been to Las Vegas, to call anything but Las Vegas, Vegas is crazy. And there was just a lot of people in, especially from regional Queensland in Brisbane. Whilst I enjoy going back and seeing my relatives, and I, I, I've got a house up on the Whit Sundays, but for the most part, it, it's it's not been a massive growth corridor for Australia, not, not as big as it, it could have been. So if you want to do something big, you've got to get out of you know, north of Sunshine Coast. You've got to come south of Sunshine Coast to do something. Basically, that's a bit sad. So I'm not, I'm not surprised that people who want to do more leave. So I'd like to think more of the question, Catherine, to be honest. Well, we'll we'll come back to Bevan because you spent nine years in the Army and amazing you signed a nine-year contract as a 15-year-old. Even before you left the Army, you started your own business. What was that um, like using all your savings to start a business that was completely different to your day job? Exciting and terrifying, I suppose. I honestly thought my then fiancé, you know, now wife or was, you know, soon after wife, still wife, thankfully. She'd just sort of say, are you nuts? No, we're going to buy a house for that, right? And she said, yeah, well, cool, let's do it. You know, she was just as adventurous as I was in that respect. I went to a computer user. This gets crazier yet. I went to a computer user group meeting one night. I've been going to them for a while. This strange operating system called Linux. Used to have, you know, installed on 120 floppy disks for the kids there. Floppy disks are the things we used to cart data around on. I looked over someone's shoulder one night and I saw them using a web browser. I hadn't managed to get the graphical component compiled at that stage on, on my setup. And I just knew instantly the world was going to change. And I thought, I've got to be part of this. And so from that point on, and I recall, it was just down near the old Mitsubishi plant, this, this guy's garden shed behind him. It was quite a nice garden. It was a big shed behind his house. He'd sort of set up his computer room. And we all go down there. And I saw this and went, man, there's a window open here. And you've got to leap through with both feet. I had been in the BBS, the, the, the bulletin board services, been dialing up the bulletin boards, private networks, people used to run out of, the, out of the backyards, used to dial into with the telephone. So you can see the capability and how limiting the BBS was. And to me, the internet was just an extension, an amazing extension. It sounds like that business just was a fantastic success, raking in cash, you know, on a daily basis, but it was a sort of near-death experience of that business that prompted you to sell. Can you just give us a sort of snapshot of the sort of two halves of that journey? 
Yeah, so um, it was a good business. So I uh, started that November '94. I, I separated from the armed services in September '95. I remember I got I took a month off leave without pay in in '95 and came back and I, I was off for a week and I just went crazy because I actually got that instead of an hour or two after work in the evening working on it, I could work on it all day and went nuts. And so I went back to work and took a bet with my boss that I could get early discharge. <laughs> end up end up coming through. And so it went well. It was in our house in, in Flagstaff Hill in, in Adelaide, on the southern outskirts of um, Adelaide. We then moved into a into, in the city. I, I gained a, a business partner. We call them co-founders nowadays. I've been, you know, we used to call them business partners. We used to be managing directors and directors, and we're now called entrepreneurs and all sorts of crazy names. So Chris, and we're still good mates. He's down in Adelaide, and we he bought into the business, and we moved into a shop in the city. We had a shop because you had to walk in literally and give you money. There was well, about two years later, credit cards really started working well. We had the credit cards, but they were those little, you know, carbon copy machines, the kachink kachink machines. So we were reliant on Telstra, was our largest competitor and also only supplier. So it's a terrible situation to be in. Aren't we so much better now? We've got MBN, for God's sakes. We've got that situation all over again. That's ridiculous. They um, mistakenly actually poorly configured some equipment that they installed on our premises. And for about, I don't know, about six, seven weeks, we were going from putting maybe 20 to 50 subs on a day, subscribers a day, to losing five or 10. So that was turnaround. We ended up getting a confidential settlement. I broke the confidential as soon as it happened because they can come after me, whatever. Uh, they almost set me broke. And, and I realised, well, if that was a mistake, if they ever really get serious about this, they can just shut us off. And so it was about time to start looking around. So it still took about probably 18, oh, maybe 10 to 16 months, I think, maybe, about a year to exit, to start that really get into the exit process. What we used to call selling out, it's now called exit, which is a cooler term. Selling out sounds a little bit sort of um, tragic. And so then it feels like the desire to jump straight back into business wasn't necessarily there. So how did the, the sort of pipe networks opportunity in partnership with Bevan Slattery emerge? Yeah, no, so I came back, we came back to, we sold the business in Adelaide in two tranches, 55% and then 45, or, you know, roughly 64, I can't recall exactly what it was. The first bit, unfortunately, was just prior to the capital gains tax changes. So, you know, we, we used to use, lose twice as much in tax as we do now. That was, it was a fantastic thing that the Howard government brought in. Then um, moved back to Brisbane. I was pretty determined not to get back into business. I, I got a job working at AAPT doing some router stuff. I, I'm quite techy. I quite enjoy the tech stuff. Never made contact. Uh, we had, had been in contact in Adelaide, actually, once or twice over the years. We caught up and um, he wanted a, a basic technical talking. He was trying to raise some money for a, for a business similar to Pipe, although it was, it was a... I suppose there's more where Pipe ended up as opposed to where we started. And then it was just as dot-com world was falling over back in the dot-com crash. And it was things were just like crashing. This is like 2000 and things were just imploding everywhere. So that the money was never going to get raised. There were several sort of, I suppose, things I had to work through with the business model. We did that and I said, okay, let's, let's fund this ourselves. We put I think, 50 grand that had initially. I think might have got as much as about 70 or 80 at one point and then funded the business from there essentially, which was Pipe stood for public IP exchange. So we're a we're a piece of network infrastructure to allow competitors to exchange traffic without having to talk to each other. So we're a, like a check clearing house for, for, for internet packets, for want of a better term. And that was also a really successful venture. What was it like in comparison to your first business that you largely were responsible for yourself as compared to, you know, having a co-founder like Bevan? Well, I had, um, I had Chris as well. So, I mean, I was probably in the first... Chris would come in September 95, October 95, so about, you know, about not quite a year, I suppose. In general, talking about business partnerships, that they should be complementary to some degree. The, the founding group, this is what we look for in investments now, where the founding group has got complementary skills. If you've got all techie, then it's probably not great. If you've got all salesy and all marketing, it's probably not, not all great either. 
So if there's a, at least there's a, a willingness for people to, to delve into those areas if they're not very good at them. Um, that, that's a good start. So I think that in both those cases, so Chris was, I'd start up the tech and I'm, I'm a mad hacker. My code is terrible. It's insecure. It works. I, I write it really fast and, and it looks like it's been written really fast, basically. So Chris came along and made it all run better. We used to have this main program that went around and looked at all the dial-in servers and every minute it would charge people, you know, to look at their accounts and take one minute off their time and do that sort of billing stuff. And it started to take 50 seconds to run, 52 seconds to run. And you can imagine the, the one-minute billing cycle takes longer than a minute. You're sort of in trouble, right? So Chris came along and made it run a lot, you know, 0.7 of a second or something. I can't remember. It was just, you know, the change was massive. So he had really mad keen skills and he's an amazing, amazing software engineer. So in that respect, then, I think, I think that that was very similar to the, some of the complementary skills that Bevan and I had started Pipe. A lot of business relationships as well in the space. I'd actually built a, a one-city version of Pipe Networks in Adelaide um, as a not-for-profit community organisation called South Australian Internet Exchange and, and been part of something called the Australian Osbone, Australian Backbone Operators Network. That taught me that not-for-profit things are really hard and Pipe's essential difference was for profit, proudly for profit. I'm not competing with customers and proudly, proudly for profit, excuse me. So I'm interested in that complementary skills question. As I say, that's what you're targeting with some of your investing now. I know you respect the sort of Y Combinator model. Do you, like Y Combinator, also feel like a company's more investable if it's got a couple of co-founders as compared to a sole co-founder? Oh, look, sole co-founders are tough. You, you want to be really have a, a good team for a sole co-founder. You know, the, just the, the risk in the business, if that, if anything, if life happens to sole co-founder, that's... That's as an, a risk as an investor. And we've got our business now at 10.30 and we've got 370-something investors who invest alongside us. So it's no, no longer you know, just my daughter's inheritance I have to worry about, if you know what I mean. It's now it's now other people's money as well. So, But I still take it just as seriously. And, you know, to be honest, sole, you know, sole co-founder is one of the things that we – I'm not sure we have. We probably have. We would have gone out and found a, a pretty good co-founder. And I, I don't like introducing co-founders later on because I think it breaks the – I like words to mean what words mean as opposed to when we sort of make stuff up. You need them bulked up, that's for sure, if it's going to be the case. That's a great point you make about you like words to mean what they mean and you're a very straight shooter. And I think that's one of the things that people really respect and admire about you is that you you know speak truth to power and call bullshit when you think it's bullshit. How did that go when you are in the army? <laughs> I can recall quite a few episodes where, in no uncertain terms, I realised I'd done the wrong thing, you might say. As every soldier does, you get tuned up pretty fast. I mean, it's, it's a martial job. If you do the wrong thing, you're going to get a clip around the ears. And, and honestly, nowadays when I see some of the things in the armed services that have been called out, it's like, oh, God, if you can't survive that, what were you doing a bayonet charge, you big sissy? Excuse me. It, it is, it's a role you never want to see deployed for real. But if you do deploy it, they're an organisation that has to take to the field the most amount of violence it possibly can in the shortest time because nation fates depend on it. So it's not it's not a standard job. Yeah, you know, there's some of the issues what I say now. I, I, I revel against. We've um I've done the 20th, 25th, 30th, and I'm the organizer for our 35th reunion, which was going to be January, but hey, COVID, we can't. We'll probably do it in September instead. And I've still got a lot of mates who are in. I've got I've got one chap I served with. He started as a vehicle mechanic. He's now an SAS warrant officer. You know what I mean? So colonels who bloody command aviation regiments and all sorts of stuff. The difference between the modern soldiers, I'm sure, are quite good, and that's not just like modern soldiers. But I tell you what, um. I reckon we had it harder, but the older generation always says that, right? So the other thing I'm fascinated by is, you know, you've said in the past that being an entrepreneur took a physical toll on you, that it, that it impacted your health. 
Can you tell us a bit about what some of that impact looked like? As is lazy would be the best description for it. I equated working long with working hard, which can be true, to be honest. It doesn't have to be true. You know, in Adelaide, we had this, we'd work six and a half days a week. There was a really accessible Hungry Jacks and McDonald's at the bottom of the hills before we turned left to go home. So, you know, that was easy. I'm 50 kilos lighter than I, I was at the peak of that business. I, I did I, my health a real disservice. I don't recommend anyone does that, but it is a lot of fun. Let me tell you, just to, you know, get stuck in that hard, but I wouldn't recommend it. So it's the biggest takeout to me there is, is that you don't have to work that hard to be successful. At some point, if you're working that long, then you're probably doing your, yourself a physical disservice that much. You probably aren't doing your business. You know, what, what else could I have done if I was fitter and probably more alert and everything that comes along with, with being, you know, just that bit fitter, I suppose. And I've heard you say that after Pipe Networks, you know, was a fabulous exit, you decided you didn't want to go back into business again and you, you started investing. Can you tell us about how you went about acquiring the skills to become a really great early-stage investor? Well, I didn't set out to. I mean, you see it a lot nowadays. You see, like, it, it, it is. And it is a good about, I don't know. I, I, you can tell by my facial expressions, I don't think it's that great. People set out to be a venture investor, an angel investor. I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't quite set out for that. I, I'd had two reasonably good, I had been a, one pretty good business success and one ripper, to be honest. And, you know, to have one business success in your lifetime is you're a bloody rarity. I have two, I thought, well, that's especially lucky. I'm not saying there wasn't hard work involved, obviously, but, you know, in a lot of teamwork and all the rest, but, you know, I thought, well, I didn't really want to. I, I tend to engage and bite into a little too much. I really enjoy it. I, I, I do obsess a little bit, I suppose, obsess, excuse me, a little bit about the about the work. So, um, but I just enjoy it. Didn't want to do that. How do you get to be on the on the road to angel investors? Yeah, so look, I, so as a result, I thought, like, I, I'd been in the US for about a year, 14 months, came back and thought, I have to relight some of my networks up again, understand what's happening. And we took about six months off after the exit. We did a little bit of travel and, you know, other bits and pieces. So I just started contacting people and, you know, they had some pretty cool business ideas. And, you know, I helped one chap I knew. He was trying to rescue some intellectual property out of receivership. So, we, you know, we threw some cash in the hole there and tried that didn't work. Found a few inventions from blokes I knew I respected. You know, oh, I made a bit of money on one or two. But, you know, and then, well, you know, it's just, you know, I actually found myself out of Brisbane traveling to Sydney quite a bit to see some investments. It wasn't a massive investment scene. It wasn't a massive tech startup investment scene in, in Brisbane. You know, if, if you want to raise money for a resource development, then you probably or a, or a real estate development, mind you, anywhere in Australia you get money for real estate development. But it wasn't really me. I don't really get real estate that much. And then went to Sydney quite a bit, Melbourne occasionally. I thought, well, there's a bit of a scene down here, and there's people doing things like fish burners and uh, Innovation Bay. And I thought, well, let's I'll go back to Brisbane and try and find that. And, and it wasn't there, so I ended up. Starting um, River City Labs, and then you know we also set up River Pitch as well, which is on again at the end of the month, I think 25th of November, uh, RiverCityLabs.net, and then uh, started something called Startup Catalyst as well, where we, we sort of sponsored 20 kids out of Silicon Valley for two weeks and end up taking investors over and, and all sorts of things. So that outbound sort of transformational tourism or outbound transformational sort of experiences in order to, to bring the learnings of other places back. Not through government grants, that sort of crap, because honestly, by the time you go through that palaver, then you just slow down. And they're pushing you into a hole that some academic believe you should be in. And if an academic tells you to do it, you really should just run springing. I like that you mentioned that there was a startup scene, but I've heard you say that, you know, lots of people in the startup ecosystem don't know where to place you. Why do you reckon that is? So I've probably got more, I'm, I'm probably more an economic conservative than most in the startup scene, to be honest, not, not so much socially definitely economically so that tends to upset people i think that enterprise is the highest is one of the highest forms of activity to be honest and that's not saying other things aren't good i just think it's one of the higher forms of activity so um i think one of the, the real um 
and he's got this from my mother actually one of the real she had a saying that, that uh, every job has value if you know what i mean and, and, and so for the more jobs you can give the more value you can deliver i, I fundamentally believe that so i will back when I was, I was queensland chief entrepreneur for a year which is an exceptionally sort of generous role queensland government offered me i was I followed Mark Salvi. I was, I was meant to be the first one. Then we found out we're having twins. And I said, yeah, look, I'm just going to wait a year. I probably shouldn't do that while we've got to, twins in the house. And so I made the decision. I said, I, I don't want to do anything in the southeast Queensland corner. Southeast Queensland's often racing. There's lots of things going on there. I want to go north of Sunshine Coast and you know, west of Toowoomba, from, you know, from coal mines to strawberry farms to, to you name it, to we met a lady in, in um, Mount Isa, Mel. She does a business called Fascinators by Mel. She makes you know, the, the fancy racing hats. In Mount Isa, and she sends them all around the world via post. So I love, I love business. I love hearing about people in business. I think you can learn so much about someone in business. And the best business when you ever come across is a farmer. If you get a farmer who's been in business for a while, everyone thinks they're somehow backwards because they wear a hat and they talk a bit slow. They know where every last cent on that property is going. And they are amongst amazing people to listen to. I probably enjoy traditional business more than I enjoy tech startup business, to be honest. One of the things that evident that is that you're a really proud Queenslander and that, that you know. I'm an Australian first. I'm an Australian first and I'm a Queenslander second. I carried her off for nine years for this country and I'd do it again if they're really desperate and they'd have to be. But that, it's, it, it is important. I'm a proud Queenslander, but I'm, I'm bloody on the Queenslander. I'm an Australian. I'm, oh, it, well, it's nice to see that there's some uh, unity as, as one nation. I'm really interested in that concept of place and how important place is to an entrepreneur and how it shapes your idea of the sort of business you want, but also... You know, there's often been a sort of mentality that early stage venture environment is hyper local and you sort of need to be close and physically present to, to you know, where other businesses like you are and where the key funders are. Do you think that's still true or is that changing? Oh, it's definitely changed. I mean, I think COVID's brought that change along. Um, so the companies we invest in typically, you know, if they get really popular, we, we can't fund them past. We, well, we can't fund, we can't lead something like a Series A, we've a few Series A's, but we're, we're typically more seed funders. We can't lead big Series A's and we can't lead a B. So they typically get that funding. And until the last few years, that wasn't really available in Australia. To be honest, you had to go to the US. Maybe until the last four or five years, you had to go to the US to get it. So you'd always be talking to US investors and it'd always be, sure, sure, next time you're in, let's catch up on Sandhill Rail and let's have a chat. It's like, well, now it's like, sorry, buddy, you've got to take the Zoom call because I ain't coming to Sandhill Road right now and he's. So that's been quite positive, to be honest. It's proved everyone you don't need to jump inside a pressurised metal tube travel halfway across the world. So that's been good. You know, the problem with Australia, though, so hyper-local, lots of, lots of parts to that question. We're a really small market. We're like 1.7% of the world's GDP or something crazy like that, if you know what I mean. So if you've really got a global business and you think your home's here, then eh, it probably isn't right. It, it, we, we want to back people who, who have a you know, high-growth, global potential, high-margin product and take it to the world. So you are going to probably have most of your economic impact and probably footprint outside of Australia. doesn't mean the one inside Australia can't be overly large, but it, it by nature means it's going to be bigger elsewhere. And in a lot of cases, especially enterprises in Australia, especially government in Australia, won't buy something Australian unless it's been bought by an American first. And they come back and sell it to us with a funny accent, which is disgraceful. But what I've learned over 20 years is that it just doesn't change. They don't trust local stuff unless an American sell it to us or a palm or a German or, a, you know, an overseas person. I've heard you use that expression, startup Ebola, which I think is such a fabulous expression. Can you talk a little bit? Well, where that came from was, so I was at the startup catalyst programs. I was, I was, I was that sick and tired for River City Labs of seeing these really good young techies 
amazing, you know, amazing young, you know, future co-founders sort of coming to Riverside Labs, coming to these events, saying, well, I'm probably going to get a job at the banks, the public service or the police, you know, like, really? There's a thousand problems being being worked on every day, new problems every day by someone in the world. You want to go and work for the public. What are you doing? So I wanted to take 20 kids over to Silicon Valley because I go, I used to go there at least twice a year and you just go to a cafe and you can hear people just conducting startup business. It's amazing. Just take you and put you there, just put you in a Starbucks for half a day, but nothing else happens and see what occurs. We end up taking them over for two weeks to like Google and Twitter and Facebook and they were happy to have us because we've got 20 of the brightest young computer kids in Australia and they just want to recruit them, you know what I mean, which is fine, who cares? And we're looking for names for this program and I said, what I want is I want people to, I want to send them over there, get them effect, infected and then come back here and infect other people. And I thought, what's the, what's the most infectious? Is like, Ebola. And then like literally we'd call to start up Ebola and then about, for about, know, about two, uh, about probably three months, 10 weeks before we left, Ebola broke out in America. So like we probably should call it something else. Um, so we call it Startup Catalyst, which I think is a far better name. Anyway. One of the things I like about the idea is if you're an aspiring entrepreneur, putting yourself close to other people who've had experiences that they can help share so you can learn off them. It, 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 I mean, it seems like that was the idea of the program. The idea of the program was literally to make 20 people unemployable in Australia. They want to come back here and say, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get a regular job in Australia. I'm going to crack a big problem. Just been to the US and I saw that. And in the middle of that trip, so we had four days either side or five days either side of a weekend, there was a startup weekend in the middle where we dropped 20 techie kids into a startup weekend. So they were just like gold. Everyone loved them. And they were Aussie accents because you have an Aussie accent, they love you anyway. And you have tech skills in Silicon Valley, you know, you double, you're cool square. And so they saw their contemporaries, I suppose, in, in the Bay Area and went like, well, I'm probably a good deal better than these people here, right? So they, they no longer feared their capacity. And they saw enough people trying big things that they went, well, let's give this a crack. So it literally was about making them unemployable. I didn't want them to be desire for a regular job for at least 10 years because, let's face it, even if they balled it up for five or 10 years, a kid with a good university degree is still going to walk into a job anywhere. So not to sound blasé about people's future, but I much prefer for them to – I feel like a bit like General Haig, sort of everyone should get over the top and charge towards the machine guns. A few may make it, and those few will do pretty good. But it'll be a bit of carnage along the way. But the carnage is, oh, well, you've just had a delayed career for five years. One of the other expressions of yours I like, which you've put on the River City Labs T-shirts, which is execution is everything. Can you tell us a bit about why you thought that needed to be the motto of River City Labs? Well, I think Peter Ellis for that is the, the general manager of River City Labs. She, she, she I mean, I, 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 I probably echoed those sentiments a lot. She put it into that expression, which is great. I always keep saying people, no one gets a, there's a lot of people out there with, with opinions on your business. The only person with an opinion who gets a real opinion in business is the person who pulls this thing out, where's the camera, and spends money with you. That's the actual real opinion. Now, that always nowadays isn't just spending money. That can also be engagement with customers on time and traction and use, usage and those sorts of things. So you need to execute your business. You need to, you know, they're not wrong, you are. So you need to wake up to that fact and move on and, and fix it and pivot and whatever you want to call it straight away. Yeah, because I've heard you say that you reckon sales is the hardest part of building a business. Why do you think that's the hardest bit? Well, typically when you start a business, you know what you're doing. I suppose you're probably like, um, and Glenn Richards has got a great saying, which is um, you have an entrepreneurial brain fart or something. So like, you know, the, the, so this is Gerber. If you've read E-Myth by Gerber, this is Gerber's technician, right, who goes and wants to start the cake store, the lady the cake store in his book. So she's great, great at cakes, right? But then, you know, all she wants to do is bake cakes all day. And how do you sell cakes? Then how do you run the business? So selling is hard because you're not a, a, a well-equipped salesperson. It's embarrassing to ask someone for money. It's hard. And if someone really wants to 
get a bargain. They're going to ask for a discount. And that's, that's, a, that's a difficult, tough conversation. As Australians, we don't tend to have the whole discount bargaining conversation. Go to America, geez, that's all they do. Yeah, sales is hard. I wouldn't say it's, hard. You know, it's not insurmountable. It's hard. And the next hardest thing after that's, you know, collecting cash. That's that's quite a tough one, you know, especially if you're sending people bills and people just enjoy it. It's almost like a sport, people not paying bills. It can be quite tough. The other thing I've heard you say is that the sort of hardest, longest enterprise sale is raising capital in your business. Can you tell us about the sort of mindset you need to have to do a good job raising capital? Yeah, so, and it is a sales process. So I don't like when people sort of say, well, if you give me cash, so I give my kids presents. I give nobody cash. Um, so... I'm going to take some money and I'm going to exchange it for equity in your company. That's called buying equity in your company. If they are lost on that fundamental part of this transaction, that's actually quite dangerous because they don't get what they're doing, that they're actually selling something they can't get back. And that comes with a whole bunch of rights and other bits and pieces too. It's it's hard. So if, you, I mean, you know, if, if you've got a run, runaway company, I mean, we had a company at the start of COVID we tried investing in and we had like a $100,000 allocation and a $3 million round and then we got them talking to some more VCs and they got really popular and we got boiled down to a $25,000 allocation and a $35 million round to give you some idea, right? So we got some people can raise money really easily. If you've got a great business and, and you've got people queuing at the door, but that comes back down to more traditional market forces. So it's about supply and demand. If you've got lots of people wanting to buy it, then you can probably price it how the hell you want it. If you've got few people wanting to buy it and you can't sell, you know, and you've got too much of it to sell, then you've got to start taking the price. Your equity has become commoditized to some degree. Well, it's a pretty small market for commodity one. And so and when you're on that process, if you're out there selling, you know, your normal job is to sell whatever services on the internet, for example, and whilst you're out there selling your equity, you're not selling your services. So for, for the investor who goes, I don't know if I believe your growth story, I'm just going to spend and wait a month or two and see what your, your figures are like next month. And if you've spent the entire time focusing on selling your equity, not your product, most likely they're not going to look great. So that puts you on a bit of a slippery slope. So you've got to... And the way you get around that is by working really hard and doing lots of things. So, you know, it, it is, it's a long, hard, tough, and you should approach it as a traditional sale. Get a CRM, sales tool, line up everyone, rank, stack them, understand what they're, uh, you know, don't approach Andreessen Horowitz if, if your company's about turning cow manure into fertilizer. They don't, they don't back that, if you know what I mean. That, that's an extreme example, but you know, target your investors. So many people come to me for things I'd never invest in, and they get upset when I say, look, well, I'm not even going to look at it, mate. I'll waste your time and mine. <laughs> get a bit filthy and you're like so what are your parameters you know what's the investable universe for you and for 1013 high growth global potential high margin that should be called tech startup that should be called tech uh high growth how, how do you get growth at 10 to 20 percent per month minimum how do you rapidly scale around the world if you've got to ship it wrap it cook it touch it franchise it that's not it and how do you get high margin at some point with the software every dollar you make you have one cent in expense so above the line expense. If you can do that with, you know, shipping tennis balls or marbles, let me know, but I don't think you can. So so that's fascinating that I think you sort of suggested that you probably have more of an affinity with traditional businesses, but the investable universe is really technology businesses. So it's sort of the head overruling the heart when it comes to your investment approach, at least in this domain of your investment portfolio. Well, it's an investment, not charity. So I take money seriously. What I do here is a very small part of our, uh, it's a small part of a family portfolio. So we've got other investment managers who take, who have a more traditional approach to that. We give them target returns, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't see a need to invest in things that others are already investing in and, and you know, look straight portfolio approach. I mean, I started with a pile of money here that my wife said it was okay for me to lose. And I haven't done that yet, which is really cool. So, um, 
far from it, which is nice. So, yeah. I've heard you say that there's some shocking behaviour out there in, in the sort of early stage investment um, landscape. What are some of the things that you would warn entrepreneurs about to sort of be red flags for them if they see these sort of behaviours they should avoid those investors? Yes, right. So actually on the Startup Catalyst thing, I actually started a, um, an investor Startup Catalyst mission. We took 10, I think 10 and 12 investors. So I was tired of seeing usually well-natured bad behaviour wrecking companies, sometimes really, really malicious behaviour. It's rarely is it malicious. It's usually just because they don't know any better. So look, I think if you take a traditional business metric into a traditional business approach into a tech startup, and the biggest question we always get is on valuations. You know, we, we invest in companies like 50 million, pre-revenue, pre-product, 50 million bucks post US. This is an Australian company. It's, it's Carter that's getting out of the press. There's some eye-watering stuff out there. You're backing people. So you, you can't take the traditional metric in. That's that's only one part, though. That's only on the... On the on the on the valuation and then the sort of terms part. The other one is when you know behaviour from investors. So I had, I had a uh, recently ex. I think, that, I think the couch is here, so they don't really know what I'm talking about. But recently exited. I've had a few exit recently, so I can talk about it. So recently exited a business of ours told us about a board member they had on who made a small investment, but literally recouped it over about eight months in board fees. I've never charged a startup a board fee yet, right? I've listed companies, yes, but not startups literally treated every board meeting as a personal shareholder update. Being on a board, it should be because you add value to that business. If you don't add value, you probably shouldn't be on the board. And if you don't trust, if you have to be on the board or you don't, or you need regular updates because you don't trust them with your money, you shouldn't be making that investment. You know, I, I think that people come out with the wrong head. Take a portfolio approach, uh, take quite a wide portfolio approach. This is, this is a high mortality sector. Lots of things die. Be prepared to back them. A lot of the ones that don't proceed, you probably want to back them again because they've just had one hell of an education. They won't do that again twice, right? The traditional vicious business approaches just don't work in this sector. I think you've said that you you, you only want to invest in founders. I've had people tell me how they do work and they talk about getting their sort of, you know, sort of, you know 120% over three years, something like that. We just made 36 times in 18 months on one deal. I mean, this is when I say work. I'm not trying to sort of blow my own trumpet in that respect, but I mean, when I say work, this is what it can do. If you know, okay, yes, any business can grow up forty percent average year on year. I know it's more than that because of the compounding. No, no, we want to we want to grow sort of 100 percent a year. Come on, this is this is what we're talking about here. If you get this right, this is what it can do. If if you if you act like you're running a milk run, you'll get that growth over there, and you can keep it. I think you've said that you, you only want to invest in founders that you'd like to have a beer with, have a barbecue with, or go fishing with. That was a long, that was a long time ago. So have you changed your mind? No, look, if I really couldn't have a beer, barbecue or fish with, I probably would have to reassess the decision. It's not a gate, that's for sure, anymore. But it's more just about, you know, if I've got to, you know, this is going to be an eight to ten year journey. If I've got to sit in a room with you and think, myself, I really don't like you, you know, for eight to ten years, once a month or once a quarter, whatever it might be, when I catch up, I'm just like, um, so there's got to be, there's something a little more um, ethereal. To the, to the decision. You've also said that you like people who, once they've got the skills, have started their entrepreneurial journey as young as possible and that, you know, you like founders who know how to do it but have the technical skills, like you say, Gerber's technician. What other things do you, do you have as fundamental criteria for the founders you invest in? You know, fundamentals is a big word. So um, there's this fundamental and there's, there's, there's nicest to have. Fundamentals are things like you're not a liar or a cheat. I have one chap walk in and tell me how he, how the intellectual property based his business up. He essentially stole from his previous employer. Yeah, well, you know, we haven't backed that individual. He may be doing quite well or not. And I'm trying to just skate around who they might be. 
but I still wouldn't back them. I don't really care if they clap and golf fell from their hands, to be honest. That's not worth hanging around. So at some point, you've actually you've got to be happy with the business you do as well, and it's clearly more than just monetary. So that's fundamental. You know, fundamental is a big word. That's a big legal term almost. So, you know, the nice-to-haves are different. You know, big market, great product, great team, innate understanding of, of the market and, and the way you're attacking it. What, what do you see that no one else sees, for example? Yeah, and then we go into that. We have our checklist would be 50 to I don't know, 80 things long, depending on what type of business that you have, whether it's a marketplace or what mode of delivery and what, what style of customers you have. One of the pieces of advice I love that you have for entrepreneurs is don't treat your business like a cash register. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? It means run a proper set of books. So it came from my um, from my accountant in Adelaide, uh, Kevin Burrows, lovely chap. When we started our first business, we used a very rigorous way to determine who'd be our accountant. He, he lived closest to us. But he gave me three pieces of advice. That was one. He, he couldn't do the books. Quite often people would just bring the shoebox or receipts to him. And he didn't like that. And money was always missing. It was like, oh, that's because I went and bought, you know, a carton of beer and some pies that week or something like that. We cash out of the, of the cash register. Made it very hard to understand what the business was doing. So it was, it was more of a point about just the fundamentals of, of good, proper bookkeeping and accounting. The revenue is the revenue, the expense is the expense, the, the profit's the profit. And there's no, no funny business otherwise. So that's more of a, but that's a call out too, I suppose. His other piece of advice was ne- never spend a buck to save 50 cents, which is um, with respect to, you know, tax time savings, come office work, come buy the printer. I used to I used to be in an office works TV ad, I probably shouldn't say that, but um, come and buy the printer. Um, you get a tax time saving. It's like, you don't need the printer, you don't need the printer. It's all, the other 50 cents is wasted, right? That and the third piece of advice he gave me was, find another accountant, this business is too big for me. So he fired himself. He was a great professional because he knew his limits, which, which is awesome. Any other advice you would have for entrepreneurs, knowing all you know, having been through the journey you've been through? Yeah, look, I suppose if they're entrepreneurs, then I'd say that they're already on the journey. So my usually, I answer the, the question I usually get there is, what would you suggest that we're trying to get on the journey? And it's just take the first step, do it. And alluding to the points you you, you talked about before, is and I've always said to people that you, you shouldn't really do this unless you've got the skills, you've got a network, and you've identified a problem. Those things are somewhat important to, to successful sort of founding of a business. And then it's do the easy things easily, I suppose. You know, there's no half-assing books. Uh, there's no half-assing HR. For some things are just, as my um, operating partner at 1013 says, some things are just table stakes. You've just got to do some things in there. And there's no there's no fancy way to do a lot of this boring stuff. In the bottom 40% of every business, if you might be Google or someone else, it's just plain running a business. Everything The sexy stuff sort of sits on top. So do that bottom table stakes stuff well. Network lots. Get a network, but then network lots. So I started River City Labs. And, you know, we ended up doing, oh, golly, over six years, we ended up doing like about 500 events for the so it was It was too many. I think I broke staff at front and centre in that effort, to be honest. We realised that's what the community needed and that's where the value was delivered. And so you'll get value out of any event and any any interaction with a person, providing you know their background. It might be, you know, I'll never take that advice because I realise what a, what a wally they are, for example. Or it might be getting advice from a, a, a farmer who, who farms blueberries, for example, about, about how you do cost accounting on the bits and pieces and about, you know, how you do asset utilisation. So you get value from all interactions, providing you know enough of the background. What are your goals from here? What's your sort of big, audacious vision from here? Look, asked me eight years ago, we had a different one. Just get the kids through school, <laughs> which is sad because they're growing up and you miss, you know, they miss when they were small. You, you always blow past these milestones, don't you? I had the kids' kindy graduation last night, the twins' kindy graduation, which is gorgeous. There's none there that I'll probably reset in the last six or eight years, to be truthful. But the one for me is to, to get our kids... It's, it's all family, right? It's all personal, right? It's all to do with the family and getting the kids where we need to be. So far as a business is concerned, we have some we have some goals and, and some 
uh, some aims in there, which we've, we've absolutely aced this year, which has been fantastic. So with respect to number of investors on platform and then number of funds, amount of funds under management, other bits and pieces, we've got two, you know, the last six months, we've had two of our portfolio at Unicorn. So, which is lovely. So great for those teams. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, mm. and great for the Australian ecosystem. So it's fabulous to see yeah. you. Well, one's yeah. an African-based one out of the, out of San Francisco, and the other ones in Australia. But yeah, very much so. The exit was awesome. Clipchamp to Microsoft was, was a cracker. Oh, congratulations! And last question: What are you really excited and optimistic about for the future? I'm a bit black armband, to be honest. I mean, there's a lot more to. Be, I hope there's a lot more to be excited about. Technology's always going to march on. I don't get that enamoured with technology. People talk about whatever it might be. The the, the latest version of highbrow IT is the latest version. It's going to be quantum computing. It's been everything. It's been, you know, I was there from 286s through 386s through to everything, if you know what I mean. In, in networking sense, I was there from RS232, 1200 board modems through to, you know, um, a fiber optic cable. So that's always there. So that that's cool and always always marches along to somewhat of a steady drum beat. Does it, does it double every, every 18 months or does it double every 12 months? That's substantial, that difference, don't get me wrong. With respect to our society, you know, we I think we've had a crushing, I know we didn't talk about COVID, sorry, we've had a crushing couple of years and I think we all need to get back to being nice to each other. That would be a good start and, and actually respecting and knowing that we can disagree and, and not be somehow fundamentally evil. Yeah, our discourse has taken a, a quite a nasty turn, which is, I don't think, healthy. So, you know, I think tech's great. It's going to march along and do great things. And I, but I think I'm somewhat hesitant about the next sort of 10 years truthfully it's just fabulous that you're so generous with your time you know we opened with you know your comment that you enjoy having these conversations and i know a lot of people benefit from them so i'm I'm really grateful and um it's been terrific spending some time with you no worries kathy cheers we hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive, like scale investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs, Scale Founded, a five-day short course, combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, access to an online education platform, and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.